Again, the focus of this book, Galatians, is grace, not law. Or grace is better than the law. How grace is far better than the law. It's better at making us Christ-like, and we're going to learn that in this book. It's better at making us more godly. It's better at making us um, look like Jesus. And it's better at everything. It's also, grace has the power to destroy legalism. So we've been talking, last week we initiated this discussion about legalism and what legalism is, and we defined it as a substitute for spiritual living. You know, we think that uh, just because you act a certain way, that you might be spiritual, and that's legalism. But we learned last week that real spiritual living is only from Jesus. It's only with Jesus. It's only done with Jesus. And Paul said in verse 1, he said, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul identified, the one, the one thing that Paul identified about Jesus to begin this book is that God raised him from the dead. And so last week we talked about resurrection and the resurrection power and how the resurrection shows us what spiritual living looks like. It looks like the resurrection. It looks like a new life. Not effort or trying, but just new life appearing in our life. And so this week, um, we're going we're gonna to go on from there and see what Paul says to us. But uh, at the beginning of each of our studies here in our war on legalism, uh, I'm going to give a little bit of a, a focused uh, look at legalism and, and Today we're going to look at the word legalism actually does not appear in the Bible, as you guys know. It's a term Christians use to describe a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulations for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. So if someone comes to you and says, well, for you to be saved, you need to do, and they say something after that, that's legalism. If they say, oh, for you to become a better Christian, you need to do this. That's legalism. Okay? We looked at it as it is resurrection. It's power. It's something happening to us. To be a Christian isn't about behaving. It's about being. It's not behaving. It's being. It's, it's never behavior modification. It's actually being changed into a different human being. A different person. So this doctrine is essentially opposed to grace. The doctrine of grace. The, God, the doctrine that God will provide the power we need to change. It, it opposes that. And so um, those who hold to a legalistic position often will fail to see the real purpose of the law. Especially the purpose of the Old Testament law of Moses which was as we see in Galatians 3.24, to be our schoolmaster or tutor to, to drive us to Christ. In Galatians 3.24, just a page over to the right, it says, um, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. So that's where the legalistic mind fails. That's where the legalistic mind 
falls on its face and, and cannot get up again is when they're wrestling with the meaning of the law. What is the meaning? Why was the law given to us? And they think, oh, it must have been, this is what you need to try to do to please God. And, and our mind thinks, yes, that's a good idea. That's a great idea. This is what we need to try to do to please God. But God isn't pleased when we try to keep the law. Because trying for us is failing for Him. Because He says if you've broken one point of the law, you've broken the whole thing. There's no point in trying to keep something you are going to break. So he said there's a purpose for the law, and the purpose of the law is great. It's awesome at doing what it's designed to do, which is to take us to Jesus. The law is great at saying, you can't be perfect. And God demands perfection. So the law says that, great. It's amazing at saying that. All you have to do is read through them, and you won't get through one or two of them before you're already saying, I've broken this. I've broken this law. And so the law is awesome at driving us to Jesus. And in Jesus we find that he fulfilled the law and we then are accepted because of his keeping the law. That's what being in relationship with Jesus is. He accepts us because of what he did and we enter into that by faith. So that's our brief look at legalism just to begin our our study today. And now we're going to go into verse 2, which is where we left off last week. Again, if you missed last week, that's fine, because you missed one verse, and you can go back and get it on the app or on the uh, website, no problem. But today, we're starting here, and Paul says, And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Again, Paul is writing this letter, he's writing this letter, and he's, He's going to war against legalism. And he says, it's not just me coming or writing this letter. It's all the brethren who are with me. Join with me in this letter. It's like if you had a letter from, like, someone in the Broncos, like Peyton Manning. And he said, and all the team as well. You know, it's like the whole team. Wow, that's so cool. I would would think that was cool. Because I like the Broncos. But... So, and see, unity was really important for Paul. He, he liked having everyone together and like-minded. He was not alone in telling these guys that grace is the big deal, that grace is what it's all about. He wasn't just this rogue apostle out there with his own ideas of what was going on. He said, all the brethren who are with me. Uh, Romans 12.6 says, be of the same mind one, one another, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. And do not be wise in your own opinion. And just, it's exactly, Paul is exactly like Jesus. Because Jesus, he was called Jesus of Nazareth, right? And a lot of people are like, what does that mean, Jesus of Nazareth? And we were at the, the pastor's conference, and David Guzak did this amazing message on Jesus of Nazareth and what that meant. And what it means, because Nazareth was just a, a, a nobody town. It was, just, it was not an important place. But yet Jesus wasn't afraid or wasn't ashamed to be identified with it. So he, he didn't have a problem setting his mind on, on, high th- on, on associating with humble people or setting his mind where God had him. He was happy to be from Nazareth. He's like, that's, that's where I'm from. It's like when I say, I'm from Greeley. 
Yes, it is a humble town. But I'm not ashamed to say I'm from Greeley. You have to be from Greeley to understand the power of that statement. But it's powerful. But Jesus wasn't afraid to associate with the unimportant, with the unremarkable, and with the unfamous. He was cool. And, and Paul here, he identifies with that and he says, not just some of the brethren, not just the cool ones. You know, me and the cool ones were writing this letter to you guys. Me and the apostles. He doesn't say that. He says all the brethren. Not just the ones I like, who I get along with. You know, our personalities are really different. Everyone here has totally different personalities. But I would not be ashamed to call you guys my brethren like Paul because uh, Paul didn't want to have this. Uh, he, he just wanted everyone to be connected and like-minded. Uh, so here's the question. Are you a friend because of what you get out of a relationship or because you're serving Jesus with that friendship? Think about all your friendships. Think about the people you like hanging out with and the people you don't like hanging out with, but you do anyway because your husband likes them or your wife likes them or your parents say you should be friends. Think think about all these relationships and think about, are you there because you're serving Jesus and and you want to be connected with that person? Or are you missing out on an opportunity for ministry and discipleship? Uh, you know, being a pastor here has reformed my thinking about every relationship in my life. I, I've learned and I've been uh, growing in my ability to connect with people that I don't wouldn't necessarily get along with in, uh, in in if I was just me, if I wasn't in my role as a pastor. I, I've been thinking so much and changing and seeing every relationship as an opportunity for ministry as an opportunity to either pour into them or have them pour into me. I love it. I love having that spiritual interaction with my brothers and sisters, and Paul did too. We're going to move on to verse 3. It says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we see Jesus and the Father are united in their will and passion for our life. He is passionate about us having grace and peace. He's passionate about giving it to us. In 2 Peter 3.18, is the last verse of 2 Peter, and we've talked about this verse already before, but I'm going to say it again. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And then James um, 4.6 says, God gives grace to the humble. So here at the beginning of this uh, verse in verse 3, he's saying, Grace and peace to you from God the Father. Is he saying, Do we have to earn this? Is he saying, You guys really need to work hard to get this grace and this peace? No. He's going to be talking about grace, and th- what I want you guys to see is he's going to be talking about how God gives grace. It is not earned. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. So, James 4 6, God gives grace to the humble. And then if you look in John 14, 27, it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. See, God is a God of giving. He's, a, he's not a God of paying wages. That would come. And if you'd like to be judged by your works, you can be. 
But that's apart from Jesus. Once you guys come into this relationship with Jesus, it's all about giving, not earning. Giving. And he loves to give grace. He loves to give peace. That's just how he works. So give versus earned. Separate those two in your mind when it comes to God. And and think about when you're dealing with God and when you're praying, am I asking God to give me what I deserve or am I asking him to give me grace? Am I asking for a gift? Because he loves to give gifts. Verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus loves giving so much. God loves giving so much that he gave himself. And that's really what you're asking for when you're asking for grace and you're asking for peace. You're asking for the thing that's sourced from God. The very part of Him that He wants to put inside you. That's what you're asking for, is Him. And He loves to give it. John 10, 18 says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. It was a free act of His will. He wanted to die for you and I. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Have you ever really thought about that verse? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What joy was it that he was thinking about? What made him so happy that he wanted to die on the cross and give his life for us? It was you. Your face. Smiling. Smile for Jesus. Big smiles. Jesus loves you. He wanted you. And he knew the joy that he would get from your relationship with him. We don't always think about God this way. We think God is just fine up in heaven all by himself. He's like, fine, I'll make a way for you to come to heaven. But that's not him. He was very passionate about doing this. This was his plan who gave himself for us that he might redeem us. Uh, In Titus 2.14, I'm quoting, he says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Notice it says, he gave himself that he might redeem us from lawless deeds and be zealous towards zealousness for good good works. It's for him. He's the one who purifies and redeems. You know, redeem is, is a new way to, is, is another way to say new birth. He, he's he's giving us new birth, and then he wants to purify us, which means he wants to change our lives to good works. None of that had anything to do with you doing anything. Did you notice that verse? Nothing in that verse said you needed to do anything. It said he was redeeming us and he was purifying us. He's the one doing the work. And that's the main focus of this book. That's what grace is. God doing the work in us versus trying to perform the law. 
Just that word trying has turned into the, a bad word. I think I said that last week. In our vocabulary, we should, when we hear the word try, we should think, oh, wait a second, that's my key word to, under, to, to realize I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm attempting to, to perform for the law or by the law. That's our key. When we say, man, I'm just trying, I'm just going to try. We can't do that. We need to be redeemed people and people that are being purified by Jesus. So another way to look at it is in Hebrews. And I want you to go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. It's to the right of where we're at. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, through whom or who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. From dead works to a living God. That's exactly what we're talking about. The law is dead works. Why? Because it's dead people doing the works. We know that when someone comes to know Jesus by grace, God is giving them new life, right? We call it being born again. We call it new life, being redeemed, being reborn. And here he says it's dead works. How can a dead person do anything that pleases God? It can't be done. But the other side was a living God. That's what grace is. It's us having a living God inside us, changing us and controlling us. All works, efforts, and trying to do the law bring death. And that's a hard reality to accept for our culture, for our country, for our world. But we are going to war with this idea. Our keeping the law does not benefit us. But... All spiritual interaction with God brings life. And look what it says. It says, the, through uh, the eternal spirit, through his blood, or offered his blood for this to happen. And I, when we think about the blood, I want you to think about it as the place and the thing that made the spiritual world connect with this physical world that we live in. It was the blood of Jesus. When it was spilt... It says the blood of Jesus was on the the altar in heaven, the mercy seat. It was his blood that cleansed us. And when we think about the blood, that's where we become spiritual people. When we think about his blood. Remember last week we talked about being spiritual people is what God is looking for. He is a spirit and he's seeking those who worship him in spirit and truth. Not legalism, which is... A, a substitute for spiritual living. So, Romans 6.23. Go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, because we're going to be there for a little while now. Romans 6.23 is where we're at right now. This says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We're going to talk a little bit for a second about giving versus earning. A gift versus wages. When you get a Christmas present, 
did you work for that Christmas present? <laughs> no. It was given to you, right? There's nothing you can do to earn a gift. Or else it's not a gift anymore, right? These are simple things. But wages are not a gift. So we're going to look real quick. And it says here that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. See, the language of grace, which we're going to be talking about in this book, God wanting to give us grace, that language of grace is gift, not earned. God's economy is altogether different than ours. All we need or want is freely given to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So back in verse 5, keep your finger here in Hebrews because we're going to come back in, or in Romans. Back in Galatians, um, we're going to read verse 5 again real quick. That he might, so he gave himself that he might deliver us from this present age according to the will of our God and Father. I'm going, to, I'm going to read that verse in the New Living Translation because it, it, it's really neat. It says, Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. Notice the word from in there because God wants to separate us from this world. He doesn't just want to fix things here. Did you know that? He's not, he's not just in this to fix things. Not, and again, not the smallest amount of suffering escapes his sight. He sees how messed up this world is. He knows. And he knows that it's beyond just fixing. It needs to be totally made new. He doesn't sugarcoat the status of this world. He doesn't make light of the evil that's here. And he knows and he states that no amount of rehabilitation can fix the problems of this world. It needs to be totally remade destroyed and recreated. Like it says in the Lord of the Rings, it is altogether evil. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. And that's why ten-step programs or paths to enlightenment do not work. Because only death can separate us from the power of this world. Only death. In Galatians 6.14 it says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So he's saying death is the only thing that will give us this separation from the world. Do you guys ever feel just stuck in this world? Like stuck in a rut? Like my job is keeping me connected to this world or my, my very heart longs for some of the things from this world? Yeah. And, and the only, Bible says the only thing that will separate that is death. And not just a, a sanitary, easy separation that's quick. No, it's a bloody, brutal, vicious, complete separation that's called crucifixion, is what Paul just said. I'm crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. Which was a, a, a graphic way of saying death. Not just easy death. Just cut someone's head off, but crucifixion, which is the longest way you could suffer. So why do we need such a graphic separation? Why do we need death? Why? Because Satan, he has a rightful claim to the lives of men through a thing that we all have called the flesh. 
That's his rightful claim on us. John 12, 31. Now the judgment of this world, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. John 14, 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. For whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the, light, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So we see him called the ruler of this world. We see him called the ruler of this world again. And then we see him called the God of this age. And then in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. What did, what did we just read in Galatians that he's freeing us from? This evil age. So what age? What ages is he talking about? Well, there's two ages. There's this age, and then there's the age to come. And once you are saved, you're, you're kind of inhabiting both of them. You, you're still living in this age, in your flesh, but your spirit is abiding in the age to come is the age when God is king over all. And so we have this dual thing happening inside us that the world doesn't have to worry about. They're just one track, mind. The flesh. That's all they have. But we have two. We still have this flesh that we need to try to crucify and kill. And then we have a spirit that is living day by day and being renewed day by day. So how can we defeat Satan? We can't. But Jesus can and has defeated Satan already when he died on the cross. So how do we defeat Satan? We join with Jesus. Our enemy in this whole thing is the flesh, is our flesh. That's our enemy. And it keeps us under the power of Satan in our lives. And if you guys have an area of your life where you can look at it and say, I am disobedient in this area and I don't know why. I am stuck in this sin and I don't know why. My flesh is so strong over here and I don't know why. It's because your flesh belongs to Satan. And he is in control of it. And that area of your flesh has to die. So how does that happen? Well, I told you to stay in Romans, so now go back to Romans. We're going to read a little bit of chapter 8. This is Paul's great magnifying glass on how the flesh and the spirit work. This battle that we're talking about, this exact thing. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. 
So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if, you, and if Christ is not in you, the body is, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This is the key. There's so many things that are in there that have to do with what we were just talking about. About the flesh and the spirit and us having to crucify the flesh. But the the key I want to focus on is the last two words. Abba, Father. This is what grace is all about. And this is what legalism puts into you. Legalism keeps you away from this. Legalism gives you fear when talking about your father or talking to your father. In fact, he doesn't feel like your father at all. He feels like a guy who has rules. And if you don't keep his rules, he won't be happy with you. But the Spirit puts in our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba was the Aramaic term for like daddy or papa. It was a term of endearment. It was something that you said to your father that was like very intimate. And this is exactly where God wants us to be. Believing that he's a gracious God. He is not looking for performance. He's looking for you. He wants you to cry out, Abba, Father. Legalism puts fear in your heart. Grace puts your Father in your heart. I love it. What did he say in Galatians chapter 1? He said, According to the will of our God and Father. Paul's talking about this. It's, it's so important to have it, uh, this father image of him. He's not the lawgiver. He's the father for us. So Galatians 4, verse 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, what? Nothing, I guess. Crying out, what? Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. See, our flesh is not part of the deal. Our flesh is not part of the family. 
Ephesians 2.19, Therefore now you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You don't come into your dad's house when you're five years old and say, Father, may I please work for my food today? No. You just expect him to throw dinner on the table. You don't come in and say, Oh, gracious Father, Please, let me work so hard for my bed tonight. It's, it's not how a family works. And you guys know it. It's not how a family's supposed to... If your family was like that, I'm really sorry. I've painted a bad picture for your spiritual life. But no, families are not like that. Families are full of love and peace and trust. So Ephesians 5, 3 through 5 says, But fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, let it not even be named among you. It's not fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Inheritance is for family. Inheritance is for family. So here's the question. Why doesn't he just come back and change everything right now? What's the delay? If he came uh, to deliver us from this present evil age that we live in, what's the hang-up? Why are we still here and, and having this dual thing going on? Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's waiting for as many people as possible to turn to him. Again, in Galatians chapter 1, it says that he might, that he might deliver us. And that phrase in Greek, that he might, is a conditional phrase, which means it's not guaranteed. It's, there's something it, that hinges on it. There's a part that you have to engage with him. You lining up, your will lining up with his. You making a choice to believe that he's this father, that he's this God of grace. You know, maybe even you're here and you haven't ever even entered into that relationship with him. Where you see him as a father full of grace that just wants to give you salvation. And then put his spirit in you and change you from the inside. Maybe this is opening up a whole new I inside you a new way that you can look at the world and say, God really just wants to be with me? He really did all the work necessary for us to be a family? Yes. That's exactly what's going on. So how much does he deliver us? And to what are we delivered to? Well, let's look at what Jesus did. Jesus seeing men under the power of death Bereft of life, he said, I am come that they may have life. I give unto them eternal life. Seeing men in darkness, he cried, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Seeing men hungry and thirsty, he cried, I am the bread of life. And if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Seeing men in bondage, 
Though they vehemently resented the implication, he cried out, if the, if the Son therefore makes you free, you shall be free indeed. How can we adequately thank God, our great deliverer, for, all, for this all-inclusive deliverance and transferal that he's done? says in Colossians 1, giving thanks to God the Father who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. We need to be just full of thanks to our God and Father today. He has invited you to be in his family. If you've never done that, please come talk to me afterwards. We will absolutely show you how you can be a part of his family. But I think for the majority of us here, we just forget that we're part of that family. We forget that the the spirit that's inside us is longing to cry out, Abba, Father. But our unbelief or our, our legalistic mind, our flesh, is crying out, I can prove myself to be a good person. I can put forth the effort because I'm better than that person over there. And at least I'm not this person over here. Our legalistic mind gets in our way of true spiritual growth and true life. If my son came to me and said, I just want to prove myself so that you'll love me, my heart would break. Yet we do that to God all the time. We say, I just I want to prove that you can love me, God. And God is like, I love you already. And I've done all the work necessary. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We give you so much thanks. And Father, we want to be a a really grateful people. And Father, our spirit does just confirm in us the message that we've heard tonight, which is that you love us and that you have brought us into your family. And by grace, Lord, we will change to be more Christ-like, not by our efforts. God, we want to grow to be truly spiritual people. We want to grow to be people who trust our Heavenly Father for practical needs here on this earth. Lord, I know there's many out here that have practical needs whether it's physical because their body is hurting or whether it's with their jobs because they don't have one or they don't like their jobs or there's so many practical things and, and we can so easily look for an outward solution to these problems when the real solution is inward. It is your spirit placed inside us and it is our heavenly Father that wants to provide for all our needs. You say it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Lord, we want to stand on that. And I pray that for all of us in here, you would encourage us to be happy to be part of your family. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.